Well, James certainly doesn't pull punches, does he? Uh, there's a, a lot there that I imagine for, for all of us uh, was quite confronting uh, as we hear these strong words. And it's words about how we use our words. Uh, back in James 1.19, we heard the command, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And we saw it was speaking primarily about our relationship with God, our reception of God's word, before being about our conversations with one another. Obviously, it applies to our conversations with one another, but we need to be quick to hear God's word uh, before anything else. Last week in chapter 2, we saw the importance of not making an empty confession of faith that isn't grounded in the truth of Jesus or from a heart that has been transformed by his gift of righteousness. Well, likewise, this passage is also speaking primarily about the way that we handle and speak God's word in the context of the church in which, he says, not many of us should become teachers. The biblical understanding of a teacher is much more than our modern model of teaching. We've taken our model of teaching from the Greeks. Uh, The idea of a teacher is someone who simply stands at the front and communicates information. A Jewish rabbi, though, a teacher, as we see demonstrated by Jesus himself, wouldn't just teach in talks or lectures. Jesus did give talks and sermons, but he would call disciples to come alongside him and follow him and live with him. They would not just learn a new way of thinking, but a new way of acting and living. After the designated period of discipleship, which was around three years, the teacher would then send his disciples out to go and teach and to do what they've learnt from him. That's why Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. That's why he worded the Great Commission in this way, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold I am with you always to the end of the age. See, that's what Jesus did for his disciples. He baptised them into the name of the Father, the Son and the Spirit through his teaching and his discipleship of them and he's saying now you go out and you make disciples in the same way, not just by teaching them ideas but teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now Jesus' approach wasn't, wasn't revolutionary in his day. He simply used the same method that all the Jewish rabbis were already using It's revolutionary to us because we're used to that Greek model where professionals impassionately dispense information to people. 
Someone once said that the most successful university lecturer is when the material on the lecturer's notes gets transferred to the students' notes without passing through the heads of either of them. Just convey information is, is what we're used to. A rabbi was a teacher and a shepherd. He would lead his disciples like a shepherd led his flock. That's why the New Testament calls those who lead the church pastor teachers. Pastor simply is the word for shepherd. Shepherd and teach. So not many of us should become teachers because it requires us not only to have the information but also to have a living, working faith that enables us not just to teach with words but with actions and with wisdom. In fact, we're told we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. He's not merely saying to us that this is something that might or will happen if you become a teacher or a leader in the church. He's saying it's something that should happen. Becoming a teacher means taking on extra accountability, which begs the question, from whom? Who will judge the teachers with greater strictness? There's a number of possibilities as to who he's referring to there. Um, And by not specifying who, I think he actually means all of the possibilities. He wants to consider, I think, three key possibilities there, or three key people. Firstly, God. God takes the office of pastor teacher very seriously because of the task to teach the truth of the gospel that's been entrusted to us our accountability is also greater. Just read what Jesus had to say to the teachers of Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes and you'll see what God thinks of people who speak falsely about him. So taking on a role of leadership in the church, whether it's as a pastor or in some kind of role where you are communicating God's word and teaching it to others means being willing to face discipline from God himself. Secondly, I think we will be judged by those whom we're teaching. Uh, You are supposed to be there this morning judging me as I'm up here teaching you. 1 Timothy 5.19-20 tells us An elder who sins is to be rebuked publicly as opposed to anyone else who sins. You're supposed to approach them in private and deal with it confidentially. confidentially, But someone in a leadership role in a church, their sin is already public. So this harsher judgement of teachers by the church is to ensure that anyone who has been led astray by their sin will also be warned and corrected and brought back. I like it when occasionally someone comes up to me after church and has a point of disagreement with something I say in my sermon and is willing to talk about it. It shows that what they're doing is they're measuring what I'm saying against what they understand of the scriptures. That needs to be done. Thirdly, we'll be judged 
really by any observer, including those outside the church. Remember, James's readers were facing persecution. The strategy of most state-run persecution, as it was at this time, was is always to arrest and to punish the leaders, hoping that that will then demoralise the followers. So, particularly in James's day, to become a leader in the Christian community was essentially to put your head on the block. Anyone who was considering being a pastor would have had to ask themselves, am I, am I willing to die to be a shepherd of this flock? This high level of accountability for teachers comes because, as verse 2 tells us, no one's perfect. We all stumble in many ways. There's, there's a temptation for the listeners to fall into a complacency where we just assume that everything they hear from the front is inerrant, without fault. This can especially be the case when uh, a particular significant teacher has been of influence for good in our lives. And so there's that temptation for the listeners to put the teacher up on a pedestal and there's the temptation for teachers to always become prideful and arrogant, especially when people gather to hear them preach. It's a regular thing, isn't it, to hear of a scandal involving a megachurch pastor who's sinned in some way. The scandal isn't just in the sin that the sin that they commit disqualifies them from being in ministry, but there's also the scandal that the thousands of people who flock to listen to them had put them up on that pedestal and assumed that they would never fail, as if they were somehow above the common temptations that are common to everyday normal Christians. And sadly, in some of those settings, people believe that about their pastor because that's what the pastor has claimed, that they are the holy man of God uh, who never sins. Well, the first qualification for being a preacher, a teacher, is to not be perfect, to actually to be a sinner saved by grace. So his statement there that someone who never stumbles in what they say, that they are a perfect man, he's actually being satirical, sarcastic there, as if there's anyone who never stumbles in any way in what they say. Sin pervades our whole being. No part of the human soul or body is untouched by sin. For the redeemed sinner, the the battle with the sinful flesh continues in every part of our being. And until the resurrection, this imperfection is a reality. That's what we've been seeing, haven't we, in James. That's part of the, the trials we face, the internal trials of struggling with our ongoing sinful nature. So we shouldn't think of sanctification as being kind of like a step-by-step process where 
one component of our lives at a time is perfected, like a piece in the jigsaw puzzle. So I'll work on my anger problem, then I'll get victory over that, I'll fix that, then I'll move on to my laziness problem, then I'll move on to my, you know, and bit by bit I kind of perfect myself and become more holy. But as a person we're a complete unit. Corruption in one part actually brings corruption to the whole. So in order to be without fault in our speech, we'd also need to be without fault in every other part of our being and we know that that will not happen before the resurrection. So we need to be always real about the fact that we constantly battle with sin. doesn't mean we excuse it or celebrate it, but as we saw in James 1, we understand that the Father's got a good reason for allowing sin to remain in us until we're fully perfected in the resurrection, but we need to be intentional in the battle against sin. John Owen, an English Puritan, said, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And what we're taught here in James 3 is that our strategy in the battle is to target the tongue, the way in which we use words, both God's words and our words. James moves on to talk about the significance of sin's effect on the tongue. It's not that we occasionally put our foot in our mouth. The tongue can be used for great evil and we shouldn't be fooled by its comparative smallness to the rest of the body. So he uses this fact of a tongue's physical size in relation to the body to illustrate that something seemingly small and insignificant as a few words spoken in untruth or anger or pride can have huge ramifications and effects on other people. It's been said a lawyer's mistakes end up in jail. A doctor's mistakes end up in the graveyard. A preacher's mistakes end up in hell. That's the power of words. I may have told this story before, but years ago when I was on campus, a student came up to me in the cafeteria to chat and he was holding a Farmers Union iced coffee and I was sitting there with a plain skimmer milk. And I said, just, just as a bit of a joke, I said, oh, do you realise the difference between your drink and mine is your drink's got a couple of teaspoons of coffee and a few teaspoons of sugar, but you paid three times as much for yours than I did for mine, and mine's healthier than yours. And we moved on and talked about other things. I bumped into him a few years later and he said, oh, I always remember that conversation I had with you in the cafeteria. And ever since that day, I've never bought a nice coffee. I've only ever bought plain milk. What I thought were just throwaway words actually had an impact on him. The power of words can be great. Because, uh, where, where are we now? Yeah, what was the first sin? We might quickly say, well, it was eating the forbidden fruit. But it wasn't the eating of fruit that in itself was wrong. There was nothing wrong with eating fruit. The fruit wasn't bad. The fruit wasn't unclean in itself. It was that they had heard God speak in truth in his commandment to them to not eat it, 
but instead they chose to enter into a dialogue, another conversation with the serpent. And then they spoke words of untruth to one another and to God in trying to justify their disobedience. If instead, when God gave them the command, they'd been quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger, things would have been very different for the whole world. Because we've been created to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God and to be faithful communicators of this word to one another and all of creation, speaking words of truth is a high calling. The level to which we sink in speaking evil and destruction is in proportion to that. The higher the calling, the greater the depth of rebellion. So since we're called to speak the realities of heaven, we may also speak the deception of hell. So using words is a moral action. We either mediate the truth and beauty of God or the deception of the serpent. So words aren't just a method of communication. Not only can the tongue cause damage that seems out of proportion to its size, but we're told that no one can tame the tongue. No human being can tame the tongue. This is to be taken both as a warning but also as a relief. It's not up to us to tame the tongue because we're told we can't do it. No human being can do it. What can we do when we realise, as Romans 3 says, our throats are open graves, our tongues practise deceit, the poison of vipers is on our lips and our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. That's what God says about our speaking. What can we do? We can't tame our tongue. All we can do is flee to the one who has the words of eternal life. The living word, the one who redeems our tongue and who sends his spirit into our hearts, who makes us cry, Abba, Father, instead of curses. So James doesn't call us to work hard to tame our tongue. Instead, we are to examine our hearts from which our words spring. As we saw in chapter 2, the issue isn't whether our practice matches our personal faith, but whether our profession of faith matches or is indicative of a living faith in Jesus. If there is a living faith, a real faith, then the works and the words will match that. The fruit indicates the quality of the source. So if you turn on your tap and you've got a glass of salty water, you would conclude that something has gone wrong at the filtration part, at the source. Or if your fig tree produces olives and then your grapevine produces figs, then you've clearly mistaken an olive tree for a fig 
and a fig tree for a grapevine. And you need to go back and learn the basics of gardening. It's the, the source that produces the fruit and the fruit indicates the state or the quality of the source. Well, likewise, if we find that the way that we speak to and about one another doesn't match with the way that we speak to and about God, we need to conclude that there's something going on in our hearts that needs to be addressed. Cursing another human being invalidates our praise of God. It shows it to be empty. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now this is all still in this context of the warning of verse 1 that anyone should think carefully and seriously before taking on any kind of role as a teacher of God's word. And as we know, I'm sure, uh, you don't just have to be in a a particular employed position in a church to be in that role. We are called to be speaking God's word to one another, to be, as we saw in the opening verse this morning, to be teaching and admonishing one another as we worship together. 1 Peter 4.11 says that anyone who speaks in the church should do so as one who speaks oracles of God. It's a phrase oracles of God that refers to statements being made by a prophet. So teaching comes with a great weight of responsibility as we're handling the living word of God. And sadly there are many today who claim to speak the word of God but instead they just give their own ideas uh, to people with itching ears. They're able to grow their big exciting mega churches where people can come and they can have their awesome worship experience. They can be boosted in their self-confidence by hearing a message that's more of a, a motivational pep talk than an, expression, uh, an exposition of the scriptures. It's the McDonald's version of church, you could say, where you drive through, you get your hit of sugar and fat and salt, you get a happy meal for the kids, And if you're feeling generous, you give a bit of money towards Ronald McDonald House to ease your conscience. But you can only live on junk food for so long before your body begins to suffer because it's lacking the nutrition that it needs to grow and to stay healthy. The problem is junk food becomes addictive, isn't it? That's why they design it the way they do, to get you addicted and when we're surrounded by it all the time, sometimes then it takes hard work and discipline to go back to and maintain a healthy diet. Well, it's the same with what we say and what we hear, particularly what we're hearing that comes to us presented as the Word of God. We're surrounded all the time by words, people, voices telling us what we should do, how we should live what we should think, how to define things like truth and good and evil and love. And the world speaks to us all the time, doesn't it? It speaks words that make us feel good about ourselves. 
tells us we're masters of our own destiny, tells us that we can define our own identity, tells us that the most important thing in life is to feel good and to be a nice person and that there's no such thing as sin or a God who judges evil, a God who will hold you to account. It says that if there is a God, if God exists, he exists to make us happy. Go to most mega churches and that's, sadly, that's the kind of message that you'll hear. And it works, doesn't it? Because that's why they get thousands of people coming to hear every Sunday. But hearing and receiving the word of God isn't necessarily easy. It's not just go through the drive through and get your fix. It doesn't pander to our emotions or our whims or the latest fads. It tells us things we don't like to hear, like the fact that we're sinners, that our thinking is wrong and needs to change, that our actions are evil and need to be repented of. It forces us to look away from ourselves and to Christ to know our identity. And when we look to Christ, we hear the call to take up our cross and follow. We hear the promise that following Christ in this world will mean being persecuted. We're told that the path to glory is actually through suffering and self-denial. It may not always give us that junk food sugar hit of a motivational talk. Maybe it feels more like eating a bit of steak and some Brussels sprouts, but it feeds us with the healthy nutrients that we need to grow and mature. So the words we speak and the words we hear have incredible power for good or for evil. So let's ensure that the words that we speak as the church are God's words, not the words of the world. So not all of us may be teachers, but that doesn't mean that we're not called to contribute to the life of God's people. Verse 13 is a call to all of us. A teacher may communicate the wisdom of God in a particular way from up front through preaching and teaching, but we're all called to be those who are wise and understanding uh, among God's people. For Jews, wisdom was a very practical thing. It wasn't the contemplative, internalised thinking of the philosophers or the mystics. Wisdom flows from a true knowledge and worship of God. And as we saw back in 1 verse 5, wisdom is a gift from the Father that we can ask for. It's the ability to know the truth and to apply it in righteous living before the face of God. Now this word understanding It's a translation of uh, the word epistemon. We get our word epistemology from that word. And it's a word that's only used here this one time in the New Testament, but it was used in reference in the world at the time to those who were skilled in a particular field, the experts or the specialists in a certain trade. It implies not just a, a knowledge of something, but the ability to 
pass that knowledge on, to make that knowledge known, to explain it to others, to take on an apprentice and teach them your trade, for example. Now James uses these two words, wise and understanding, here together to address not just those who might want to be teachers, but anyone who knows and understands the truths of the gospel and an ability to explain to others the way that the gospel has worked its way out in their lives. And that's something we're all called to as Christians. Wisdom is first of all displayed in our lives. And James points to two key qualities of this wisdom. Firstly, he says, good conduct. Now, there are two Greek words that are translated into English as good. One, agathos, hence the name agatha, means moral goodness. But the word that James uses here means good in the sense of being attractive or appealing in the way that we use it today to say I had a good meal. Not that it was morally good, but it was, gave me pleasure, it was enjoyable, it was good. True wisdom displayed in a person's life is genuinely attractive to people. Even if they may sharply disagree with what we profess to believe, they cannot avoid the attractiveness of wisdom. Theophilus of Antioch, who was, uh, in, lived in the second century, uh, wrote uh, a letter to his pagan friend. Uh, Theophilus himself was a pagan. He became a Christian and then became known as an apologist defending the Christian faith. He wrote this, We find out that Christians have a wise self-control, practice temperance, marry only once, keep chaste, refuse injustice, uproot sin, practice justice, observe the law, have a positive appreciation of piety. God is acknowledged and truth is regarded as the supreme law. Grace guards them. Peace protects them. The sacred word guides them. Wisdom teaches them. Eternal life directs them. God is their king. So there should be an attractiveness about the way we live that's not just an example for the next generation, but something that adorns the gospel that we proclaim. Jesus tells us, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In doing this, our works give an attractiveness, but it's not to us, but to the Father, so that people may praise your Father in heaven. As important as the type of works that we do is also the attitude in which we do them, not to bring attention to ourselves and to make people assume that the goodness of our living is a moral goodness that belongs to us, but in a way that brings attention to the Father so the attractiveness, the goodness, helps them see his moral goodness. Secondly, He says uh, there's the good conduct in the meekness of wisdom, humility. While good deeds are hard to hide, the truly humble person will wish that they could be hidden rather than have them draw attention to themselves. 
That's the humility that comes from wisdom, the fear of the Lord that acknowledges his sovereign grace and which refuses to boast in anyone but him. Because true wisdom is essentially to do with our position before and our attitude to the Lord, so humility will primarily be an attitude expressed towards God. Essentially, it's the calling of a true human being, good conduct and the meekness of wisdom. Now, what's the antithesis to this attractive, humble wisdom? Well, it's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And we might wonder why someone would want to boast about bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Yet if you think about it, that they're actually the things that this world considers to be wisdom. The desire to become great in the world and in the eyes of others. To become at least equal or greater than others in the things that we possess. That's what drives our consumerist society. You know, the strategy of advertising is to trigger envy in us so that we will want what other people are buying. We see people on the screen who are fulfilled and happy because they own that car or that device or that home or that product. But this was no less a temptation for James's readers. Material wealth, citizenship, social standing would bring you privileges, such as, as we'll see next week, the freedom to travel and to conduct business as you wish, or influence and power in the church. The fruit of this envy and ambition is evident in our society, and it will also be evident then in a church that succumbs to the influence of the world and has started listening to the words of the world instead of the word of God. A heart that's overcome by envy will sink to all sorts of evil in order to achieve what they want. And we're told this, is, this has no place in God's household. It's focused on earthly things rather than things from above. It's unspiritual rather than dependent on the life of God and his spirit. And shockingly, it's demonic. Using worldly wisdom in our Christian lives and in the church isn't just a bad idea, it's actually playing into the hands of the devil. The Christians, rather, verse 17, are to be the antithesis of that, of the world. See, our wisdom comes from above. It's the wisdom of God himself, the very expression of his character. To have this heavenly wisdom is actually to have God himself present to us and with us. Each of these qualities of wisdom that are listed here, we see exemplified in the person of Jesus. Jesus, who we're told became to us wisdom from God, our righteousness, sanctification and redemption. So to fully grasp what each of these mean, we need to look at how they're exemplified in the life of Jesus as he lived in humility 
in perfect obedience before his father, not to just copy him, somehow replicate his qualities of wisdom, but to be people who abide in him, who receive from him that true wisdom from above and it's outworking. So while earthly, unspiritual and demonic wisdom causes disorder and evil, heavenly wisdom produces, in verse 18, righteousness and peace. Many times in the scriptures these two words are paired together. In some case we see that peace is the fruit of righteousness. In other cases, as in here, righteousness is the fruit of peace. They always go together. Psalm 85.10 tells us that when God is at work to bring salvation to his people, love and faithfulness meet together, righteousness and peace kiss one another. Well, righteousness and peace come together perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews, in the discussion of Melchizedek and how he foreshadows Jesus, we're told, remember Melchizedek, he was the king of peace and he was the king of righteousness. So every thread keeps coming back to Jesus. Wisdom, righteousness, peace, purity, submission, sincerity or any, any other virtue that we need to live out our faith with integrity and authenticity can only be found from him as we know him and love him and live in him as we receive his grace every moment of every day. Let's pray.